All right, guys, as you sit down, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews 3. And normally we kind of pick a book and we go straight through passage by passage, but every once in a while we'll back out and do something a little bit more thematic. And that's what we're doing right now, looking at the idea of Advent. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Advent means arrival or coming. And it's not just any arrival, but it's the arrival of an important person for an important reason. That involves uh, preparation. It's, it's a big moment. There's anticipation for it. And in this way, all of Scripture really is Advent. And really, Christianity is all, could be called a whole episode of Advent. It's all about the coming of Jesus and what he comes to do. The most important person coming to do the most important thing. All right, we've been looking at different angles of that each week, and today we're going to look at the coming and work of Jesus through the angle of Moses, because Scripture tells us that Jesus came to be the greater Moses, the greater Moses. And we're going to explore what that means today. And it's important because getting this wrong is precisely what caused the Jews to miss Jesus during his time here on earth. They thought Moses himself, the original Moses, was what they ultimately needed, right? That their Messiah would essentially be a carbon copy of that first Moses. But who Moses was and, and what he did was not meant for that, right? It, it can't actually hold, he can't hold that much weight, as we're going to see. Moses was a shadow of one who would completely outstrip all that he was and all that he accomplished. Because Moses himself was never the point. He was pointing ahead to the one who is. Now for us, we live on the other side of Jesus coming, right? We, we kind of know the end of the story. We know who Moses was pointing forward to. But we need this just as much as the Jews did who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah to identify him. Because the same sort of things that drew them to the first Moses and, and made them see Messiah through the lens of who the first Moses was, there's a real draw towards that for us, as we're going to see. So much so that we often will take Jesus as he came and we'll reshape him a little bit into the mold of the original Moses, back into Moses' image, and trade the reality that's come in Jesus for the shadow that was Moses, and we trade the ultimate for the placeholder. But that's devastating, because if we put Moses in place of Jesus, that's to trade life for death. It does not work. and has devastating consequences for us. So let's start exploring this through Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. The author of Hebrews is going to paint us a, a little contrast that shows us how Jesus is superior to Moses. There we read this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence 
and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would help us by your spirit to see Christ clearly through it. Not Christ as we would imagine him or as we would want him to be, but as he truly is, because that is the Christ that we need. Uh, We ask for your help in Christ, in his name. Amen. All right, guys, so this passage talks about the superiority of Jesus to Moses. It calls Moses a faithful servant in God's house, while Jesus is a son and the builder of the house. So Jesus is greater in in two different ways, right? His, His identity, who he is. Moses is called a servant, Jesus a son. But also what he accomplishes is greater as well. Jesus is the builder of the house. He's the one who constructs the people of God, while Moses is, is merely a servant within that people. All right, so that's the big overarching point of this passage. But what does that mean? Right? That's what we're going to spend our time doing is kind of fleshing that. What does that mean? That Jesus is the son and he does this greater work. He's a greater person and does a greater work than Moses. So let's start out by thinking about Moses. And this is going to be tough. He's a tough guy to summarize. He wrote about 20% of your Bible. It's a big book. That's a lot of words, right? And he's the main actor in the vast majority of that stuff he wrote. So summarizing Moses, bullying Moses down, and kind of getting to the heart of who he is, is a bit of a challenge. But if we do it, I think we can, we can really encapture who he was by, by looking at one role that he had and two things that he accomplished in that role. All right? So the first thing we need to understand Moses is that he was a prophet. He was a prophet. He wasn't just any prophet. He was the greatest prophet. We read this in Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Moses is the greatest prophet, essentially. And what's a prophet? A prophet is essentially God's mouthpiece. That's what they act like. They're God's spokespeople. They take God's words to his people. And a lot of times it's accompanied by signs and power to authenticate that this message is real, that it's true. So that's who they are. They're almost a little bit like lawyers, Right? Especially later on in the prophets when Israel is struggling and failing God and walking away from him, God says prophets to essentially accuse them and say, hey, they're like, almost like prosecutors. They say, you violated the covenant you've made with God and this is what's going to happen. So that's who prophets are. And we see this, Moses gets called into this at the burning bush. You guys familiar with that story? That's one of those ones we remember from Sunday school and stuff probably growing up, right? Moses has run away from Egypt. He killed an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite in captivity, and he's out tending sheep, and he sees this bush that's burning, but the bush isn't going anywhere. He's like, that's weird. That's not how bushes burn, so I'm going to go check this out. And God speaks to him from the bush and says, hey, I've chosen you. You're going to be the one who's going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to speak for me, and you're going to free my people. All right, so that's Moses' call into being a prophet. That's who he was. Now, why? What did he accomplish? What did this greatest prophet do in this calling that God gave him? Two primary things. The first one is that he redeemed God's people out of their slavery, right? This is the story of the Exodus, right? In 
that we find in the book of Exodus. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were crying out to the Lord for a deliverer. Deliver us, deliver us, bring us out of our captivity. And God raises up Moses as that deliverer. He sends him to to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And he brings sign after sign of God's power and judgment on Egypt. 12 total, till Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go. So he leads the people out of Egypt to the shore of the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. He's going to go get them back. And so in the culminating event of this bringing Israel out of captivity, God, through Moses, he parts the sea. Israel walks through on dry ground. The Egyptians follow, and the power of Egypt is wiped out as God pours the waters back in on them. And this Exodus story, this is really the the archetypal picture of of God's redeeming work in the world. This is what Israel's always going back to, of what redemption looks like. God delivers his helpless people through a redeemer that he provides. So that's redeeming God's people out of slavery is the first thing. The second thing, really significant thing that Moses did is that he gave the people God's law. After the Exodus, he leads them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. He goes up onto the mountain, and up there, God makes a covenant with Israel through Moses. We talked last week a lot about covenants and how these things work. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? I saved you, I rescued you. This is how our relationship's going to work. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And these are the things you're going to do, right? That's the law, right? This is how you're going to relate to me. These, this is what is right for you to do, and this is what you are to avoid. And the heart of that law is what we now know as the Ten Commandments. Right? That was like the core piece of it. There's a lot of stuff in there, but that's really the, the heart and the essence of it. Right? And this came along with promises for, if you obey, I'll do all these wonderful things for you. But if you disobey, there's going to be all these curses that are going to fall on you. Right? This is a, if you guys remember last week, we talked about covenants of works versus covenants of grace. This is a covenant of works. This is do and live. If you fail, you die, essentially. So, so who Moses is, if we're going to define him, right, and, and kind of think about who this picture is, who we're supposed to think of Moses as, Moses is the prophet who frees God's people from slavery and brings them his law. And, and these two things were really fundamental identity-shaping realities for God's people in the Old Testament. This is what they always went back to. They were the people that God delivered from Egypt, and they were the people who God gave his law to. Right? If, you, if you're to talk to an Israelite, that's what they clung to. Like, this is who I am. These things set me apart. This is what my identity is. God delivered me from Egypt, and he gave me his law. And when we realize that, when we realize how central this was to the Israelites' identity, it's easy for us to see how they could miss how insufficient Moses' work was. Right? And this is not to denigrate Moses. The passage we read talks about how Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. He did what God called him to do. But he, what he did was not sufficient for us. And that's what we have to see, because he was never meant to be sufficient for us. That was not the point of what he did. And if we look closely at what Moses did, we'll be able to see the cracks. We'll be able to see how what Moses did it wasn't really good enough. It was great and it was glorious, but it is not the ultimate thing. We still needed something more. We needed something greater. 
Let's think about Moses' redemption, first of all, right? He brings the people out of Egypt, this incredible deliverance from the greatest power in the world. But then what? What happens next? They go out into the wilderness. Moses goes up against the law. Before he even comes down the mountain, they've made another god and they're worshiping him. Like, he just brought you out of Egypt like, like five minutes ago and we're already doing the idolatry thing, right? They've, they've already done that. And so they get punished for that. And they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness and they're constantly complaining. Why did you bring us? You brought us out here to die. You brought us out here to starve. Here's some miraculous food. Oh, this miraculous food is getting boring. We don't like it. We should be back in Egypt where we had onions. Those were great, All right? Like this over and over again. So you can see they've been brought out of slavery, but they are not at rest. They are not at rest. They've been freed physically but they are, are clearly not, there's no peace, right? There's no peace. And this comes to head, I think, most clearly at the end after 40 years in the wilderness. There's this promised land that they're supposed to be going to. They end up wandering around for 40 years because of all their rebellion and all their lack of trust in God. And they finally get there. Moses leads them to the brink of the promised land. And he doesn't get to take them in because of his own failure and sin. God brings him up on a mountain and says, here, I'll show it to you, but you are not the one who gets to lead the people in to rest. It's really kind of heartbreaking when you think about all that Moses did and all he went through. But there's a reason that God had it play out that way. So you can see how the redemption, it was beautiful, it was amazing, it was a great work of God, but it wasn't the full redemption we needed. There was something else. There was something else that the Israelites were longing for. There's something deeper that we need. The other part of it, the law, right? This law they received. Well, this law is rather hopeless for us. Um, Moses gave them a law, but, but the law that he gave them is completely unkeepable from the start. The, the bar is too high. It doesn't work for sinners. I've used the picture before. It's like telling me, like, you'll give me a million dollars if I can beat LeBron James in basketball. That's a great promise. It does me no good. I'm going to, you could cut off LeBron's legs and he would still beat me, right? Like, it's just not going to work. That's what the promises that the law offer are. Like, this, this hey, as long as you obey, that given to sinners... Is, it's brutal because we cannot do it. We cannot do it. And it's amazing how God kind of shows us this in all these little ways, right? For one, he's up there receiving the law. They're already breaking it before he even gets off the mountain. And it's, the picture here is beautiful because when Moses comes down and sees, he throws the tablets down and they shatter. Like this just graphic picture of the law broken already, right? And then if you go... Even further, in Deuteronomy 34, Moses is kind of reminding the people of the law, and it, when he gets to the end, when he talks about what happens if they fail, he doesn't say if, he says when. He doesn't say if, he says, if you fail, this is going to happen. He says, when you fail, and all these things happen, then there's this beautiful promise of what he's going to do in the future, right? But, but it was embedded from the very beginning. There, there was no hope in the law for sinners, right? That was not... The point. And so if we look at Moses, or if we, if we just stay on the surface, there's these beautiful, miraculous, amazing works, and they are. 
But it also, if we look a little deeper, it's pretty clear that this earthly freedom that Moses brought, it couldn't last and it didn't satisfy. And the law that he gave us, we can't keep it. So it's a fairly bleak outlook if we stop here with Moses. Because Moses is not the answer, but he was never meant to be the answer. That's the point. He was there to magnify the problem, right? To to make it so obvious that we needed something greater and bigger and more so that we would be looking for it when Jesus arrived on the scene. uh, Moses himself, he didn't know all the details, but he even knew that there was meant to be somebody to come after him who was like him but different. In Deuteronomy 18, we read this. The Lord your God will raise up for you, this is uh, Moses speaking, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, a fellow Israelite like Jesus. And it is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. All right, so the picture is painted is that there's going to be another prophet that needs to come who's like Moses. But there's this language in there that talks about, like, this prophet is going to have that last line in particular. If those who will not listen to his words, they're going to answer to me for it. This, this is going to be the ultimate prophet who brings the final, complete word of God to the people. So Moses himself, he didn't know the full picture. He didn't know what it would all look like. But he was pointing us to the fact there needed to be somebody like him, but greater, who could do more than he did. But Israel completely missed this. They completely missed this. And they completely missed it because they were trying to hang on to those things that Moses gave. They were trying to find their hope in the work that Moses did. They wanted that earthly freedom. That was their picture of what it meant to be free was, all right, somebody to overthrow Rome. Get rid of Rome, free us from Rome. That's what they wanted. That's what they thought Messiah would be. It was earthly freedom and it was law keeping. Just keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. Do better, try harder, right? All their hope was in those things. And when Jesus didn't lean into those things, they completely missed him because they had a different idea of what Messiah would be. So let's talk about the greater Moses. Let's talk about Jesus and how he is like Moses, but he is different. Jesus too, like Moses, is a prophet, right? He's a a Jewish prophet just like Moses was, but he is a unique prophet. He didn't just speak God's words. He didn't just receive words from God and say them. He was the word of God, the very word of God incarnate. He wasn't just speaking words. He was the perfect complete revelation of what God wanted to reveal about himself to the world. John 1.14 tells us this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not a run-of-the-mill prophet, right? He is not just this conduit that words are flowing through. He is the word. He is God himself, and he is the revelation of God himself to us, complete, lacking nothing. He is the final and ultimate prophet because he is God's final sufficient word to us. Moses and the other prophets, they revealed bits and pieces, true bits and pieces that we needed and were a gift to us. But Jesus brought the full revelation, everything we needed to know about God, to engage with him the way that we need to define life. So what did this prophet, this unique, special prophet, this greater Moses, what did he do? Right? He's got the same office as prophet, but he's different. But what did he accomplish? All right. Moses freed God's people from political slavery, right? from political bondage. But Jesus came to free us from sin, from spiritual bondage. Right? He didn't, Jesus didn't come to free his people from Rome. He didn't come to deliver us from the discomforts and inconveniences of this life, to make things a little better for us here. But that's what Israel was expecting. That's what they expected Messiah. They wanted just another carbon copy Moses, get rid of Rome, let us put the law in charge, and let's, let's do this. That's what they wanted. That's what they were looking for. But Jesus came to give spiritual freedom, freedom from sin that doesn't just make life here a little better for the 70 years or whatever you happen to get here, but to give eternal life in perfect bliss with God. He came to give us so much more. Well, this was embedded in just the, the really early prophecies right before he's born. When the angel comes to Joseph to explain what's going on with Mary, he tells him this, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. As this is a huge reason they all missed Jesus, right? Think about Jesus' ministry on earth. Right? When he's miraculously feeding people, there's a lot of people around, right? We call it the feeding of the 5,000. There are actually more like 20,000 people there. Big crowd, right? When he's miraculously healing people, right? There's, he's swarmed. People are cutting holes in roofs to get to him. When he goes to the cross to deal with sin, who's around? Nobody. Like three people come back to the cross after they ran away the night before. That's it. He's accomplishing the greatest thing, the only thing we absolutely need, and nobody's there for it. Nobody cares. The truth is that we too often long to be free from the discomforts and the inconveniences of this life far more than we want liberty and freedom from sin and the death that it brings. We'd rather be free from the things that make life here a little harder than from the stuff that kills our souls. We're just like the people of Jesus' own day. We share that same impulse. We want Messiah in our image. We want him to save us from what we want to be saved from, from the things that bother us right now. We want to be saved from a political system we don't like, we want to be saved from our weaknesses and limitations, right? Our bad health. 
We want to be delivered from uncertainties, our, our lack of ability to control things the way that we want to. We want to be delivered from lack or discomfort. We want to be freed from feeling inadequate or purposeless or undervalued. All these things, we long to be free from these. And, and they are so small compared to what Jesus actually did. But they feel like our biggest problems in the moment. But they aren't. They, they aren't. And it becomes really clear because when one gets relieved, like three other pop up to take its place. You get that thing you're longing for, oh man, if I could just be free from this, then I'll be okay. And you get it and you're not. You're not. You're just more disappointed and more let down because this thing that you had your hope in failed you. So you're just disappointed one more time. So you try again and that fails you. And you try again and that fails you. And you spiral deeper into despair because it, what you feel like you need is not being met. I, I love the story of Jacob and Esau, because I think this pictures it so well, right? Esau is out hunting, and he gets really hungry. Jacob's at home, and he's cooking some stew. Esau comes in, and he's like, I'm starving. I'm not going to live. Give me some soup. And Jacob's like, okay, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright, which is a super big deal. That's like, like back then, the firstborn got everything, and the other guys got nothing. So Esau's like, you can have everything that I deserve as the firstborn son, for a bowl of stew. Guarantee you Esau wasn't about to die if he had to take like five minutes to find some bread or something, right? But he just felt that need, that physical hunger so intensely that he was willing to throw away the most valuable thing he had to have that little appetite satisfied for what, an hour or two? Utter foolishness. And we do it all the time. So did Israel, right? This is what happened with Moses, right? He leads them out of Egypt. They get, they're at the sea. They see the Egyptians coming. He's like, you brought us out of here. Now you're going to just, so we can just get killed by the, the, the sea. Parts it. They go through it. Right? Great. Answered their problem that they had. Now they're out in the wilderness. Oh, you brought us out here to starve. At least when we were slaves, we had food. Miracle food. Great. All right, the miracle food is boring. We don't like it anymore. We need a new menu, right? God even gives them different food at that point, different miracle food, right? And it just keeps going on. They keep getting one physical, immediate thing satisfied, and it's never enough. It's never enough because it didn't answer the one thing they actually need. And it is so good that Jesus did not waver in his purpose. You know how tempting it must have been Every single one of us would have fallen this if we were in Jesus' position, right? All you had to do to be the most wildly popular guy in town is say, you're going to take down Rome and reestablish Israel as their own thing. Everybody would have lined up. And you could make people alive from the dead, so you're going to be pretty good at this whole, you know, rebellion thing, right? That's a good guy to have on your side. He you make food, brings people back to life from the dead. This is a guy you want on your side, right? All he has to do is to do that. Instead, he refuses over and over and over again. They try to make him do it, and he won't. And instead, he lets them all fall away and despise him and hate him to the point where they'll kill him. Because if he didn't do that, you would be dead in your sins. That was the only hope. He had to be hated and despised and eschew all of that stuff that we chase so that he could save you. 
and take care of the thing you actually needed, to buy the one true freedom that you can't lose and that you have to have, the freedom from sin and death. Again, that, I love that picture at the end of Moses' life. He's on the threshold of the promised land, that promised land that represented true rest, and he can't take them in. But you know who gets to? The guy who follows him. His name's Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus. It's not an accident, right? That, that is Jesus' name. That's the picture. Joshua takes the people in to the promised land to their, their rest. The question is, though, how does he give us that rest? How can he give sinners rest? How can he give us peace with a perfect holy God? Well, he does it because where Moses brought the law, Jesus brought the gospel. Jesus brought the gospel. God's law that he gave Moses is beautiful, it's glorious, it's good. But it is not good news for sinners. It is not good news for sinners. A law against murder is a really great thing, but it is not a great thing for you if you are a murderer. At that point, it becomes very bad for you. And that's how we stand in, face, in the face of God's law. We are all damnably guilty, and we can't get out from under it. Right? So it is good and perfect, but we are not, and that is an irreconcilable problem, seemingly. You can't work that off, So something pretty remarkable has to happen to fix this, right? His law is right, it's wise, it's just, but justice kills sinners, and that is all of us. We can't just have justice. We can't just have goodness. We can't just have righteousness. We need grace and mercy, and there is none of that in the law. There is no grace in the law. There is no, it is perfectly just, but there is no grace. So we need a different Word. If Jesus is just a better lawgiver, we're still done. There's to be a totally different thing that he is doing. And thankfully, that's exactly what we got. John 1, 16 through 17. This is so beautiful, right? From his fullness, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what is that grace? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to this one. I like 17 even better than 16. 16 is the one we all know. Listen to 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. If Jesus had been just like Moses, that's what he would have been. He would have come. If he brought more law, he would have come to condemn the world because that's all the law can do. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right. Now, how can this be? That the Pharisees heard this kind of stuff and they accused him. Like, hey, you're undermining, you're undermining the law. Like, you're undermining God's law that he gave us through Moses and infuriated them. Right? And they used this to try to undermine him, but Jesus turned the tables on him. Right? In Matthew 5, 17, He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill means to complete or to satisfy, 
right? What Jesus did is he didn't come and say, grace is not some willy-nilly thing of like, oh yeah, I just don't care about sin anymore. Do whatever you want to. It's all, that's not it at all. Because grace does not replace justice. Justice is still there perfectly. So there's got to be this needle that gets threaded where perfect justice can be satisfied, but then somehow sinners can still be made righteous. And Jesus is the only one who can do that. Romans calls him, calls the work that Jesus does the only way that God can be both just and the justifier of people who are ungodly. Because he comes, and that law that Moses got does it perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. He merits, he earns all the blessings, all the promises that came were offered for obedience to that. Okay, but the problem is that we're under the curse because we're sinners. So that's what was going on on Calvary. What happened on Calvary, that is our curse falling on Jesus. Everything that happened to Jesus on that cross should have happened to you. To a man, every single one of us should be hanging there. But Jesus took it instead. He bore the curse for us. And he won the promises for us, right? This is this double benefit. He takes the curse and he gives us the promises. He gives us all that he earned with his righteousness. That's the gospel. The gospel just doesn't kind of magic away sin and pretend it doesn't exist. It, it finds a way. Jesus, in this way that only he could, satisfies the full law's demands so that we can have its blessings as if we had never sinned and if we lived it perfectly the way Jesus did. But here again, we have a problem, right? Because just the same way that we like to go back to the temporal freedom that Moses did, we like to go back to lawgiver too. We like law a lot. And our tendency is to turn Jesus from grace, grace giver into lawgiver. This is so natural for us. There's a reason there's like eight bazillion self-help books published every year, right? Because we, we know that we need to be better. We need to be fixed. There's something wrong, and we need something to be okay. And where do we look? All right, let me fix myself. Let me get better. I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to make up for it. This is, this is where we naturally go. We look to ourselves, right? And so when we do that, we start to see Jesus not as the one who gives us his righteousness, his grace. We start to see him as the hammer dropper, right? The, the Moses who comes in with even harsher, <laughs> harsher law, right? Read the Sermon on the Mount and all the stuff Jesus says, and we just get crushed under that. Because how could I ever do that? I can't do that. And that's the point, guys. That is the point. That was the point of Moses. That's the point of having a law that is so heavy. It's not meant to crush you under the weight of the fact that you can't do it, so you try hard. It's supposed to crush you so completely that you give up trying. When you look at God's law, you should feel completely hopeless if you're seeing it the right way, if you understand what his standard actually is. You won't be able to lie to yourself enough to think that you can keep that. It has to be satisfied for us. And this is the beautiful thing, right? When, when, when Jesus does that, it's a little bit, the wall is a little bit like a lion. I like this picture, right? If you are in a cage with a lion that's hungry, that's a bad situation for most of us, right? Like most of us aren't coming out of that pretty good. But if you are like away from the lion, if the lion's full, it's eaten, it's not hungry. If there's a barrier between you and it, that lion is 
beautiful. It's this amazing, beautiful, regal creature, right? But you can never see it that way when it's hungry for you and you're right next to it, right? It's a terror to you, right? That's this idea of of Jesus fulfilling the law. He satisfied all the terror that the law holds for you. So for us as Christians, when we are trusting and resting in the work of Christ, the law is a good thing, right? Because we don't have to keep it perfectly anymore. Jesus already did that. So now we can appreciate its goodness and its wisdom and its beauty. And we see it as this this wonderful instruction to know us how to navigate this world well. It tells us what it looks like to love God and to love people, which we want to do now because we're filled with his spirit. So the law is beautiful and good, but as long as it's a threat, until it is satisfied, it is horrible for us, right? So the only way we can actually look at God's law and use it for, for the beautiful, wonderful, good thing it is, is have it all taken care of for us. And that's what Jesus does, and then he gives it back to us. He frees us because he is perfect for us. He frees us to be able to pursue the good and not be crushed when we inevitably fail over and over and over again, as we do. Guys, this, this old Moses stuff, right? Wanting to find our hope in having here be a little bit better, Right? And us wanting to control and, and, and fix things by our own performance, it is so enticing. We fall into this every single day, right? The, the, the work of the Christian life, the primary work of the Christian life is constantly learning to not look to yourself, but to look outside of yourself to Christ for all that you need. And to not look for your hope here, but to look for your hope for what Christ has ultimately provided for you. Right? Not a little relief for a few years here, but perfection forever. Right? This is the real work of the Christian life is trust. It's not works. It works flow out of the trust. It flows out of what we receive from trusting Christ. But you can't get there. You're freed to now pursue good things, to love your neighbor, to seek to honor God, and not be crushed and devastated. And this reality, guys, is exactly why God has given us communion. Right? He knows the pull that we feel as sinners to want to do it ourselves and to want to put our hope in the here and now. It's always there. It's in our flesh. The world around us pounds us with it all the time. And it's the one thing Satan wants more than anything else. He doesn't care what you do if he can undermine your faith and trust in Christ. That's his win. Right? So he, but he does not despise us for the fact that we are out there getting beat up by this stuff all the time. He cares for us. And his communion is one of the ways that he cares for us. He gives us this meal to remind us of the total sufficiency of Jesus for us. This is about God's provision for us. And that's what we're going to take now.